It's good to be with you tonight. It's a little strange being introduced at the church that I serve. Uh, We recently moved from upstairs in the building to across the yard, so I can no longer say that I'm raising my kids in church. Uh, But I do want to recognize other people that are serving other churches. If you're a pastor at another church, uh, would you please stand? All right. I need name. Uh, how long you've been, uh, position you have, how long you've been there, and name of your church. Excellent. 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 We missed you on Wednesday. It's good to, good to see you back. So, uh, excellent. Thankful for these pastors, members of our church in particular. Uh, take opportunity to be able to, to greet them uh, following uh, our time together this evening. Uh, as we study the scripture, uh, just at the beginning, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the unifying, interpretive center of scripture according to the scripture. That's the main principle we're going to take away tonight. It's going to be a little workshop oriented. I'm going to ask for a lot of interaction from you as we move through our time together this evening, and then we'll have time for questions at the end. This lecture in its entirety was based on how helpful Dave Helms' lecture on connecting to the gospel was to me when he was here for Simeon Trust last year. So a lot of the material that you're going to hear tonight, I'm just going to go ahead and forward cite David Helm and Mike Bullmore, and I'll explain both of, both of those connections later in our time. But the main principle that I want you to take away tonight as we think about the gospel and begin to think of the multifaceted aspects of the gospel as we try to apply it to our life is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the unifying interpretive center of Scripture according to the Scriptures. But how do we understand any text we're reading in relation to the gospel? How do we understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in light of any passage that we're reading? How does the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus affect the reading of any passage of scripture that we're reading? How does the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus help us understand the Christian scripture as Christian scripture? How does it relate to it? How does it shine meaning on it? From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we need to be asking ourselves this question. How does the death, burial, and resurrection affect the passage that we're reading? And if we don't, we fall into two different dangers, dangers that we're very familiar with. On the one hand, we have the potential danger of legalism, where if we're reading a text and we're not reading it in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have the tendency to say, do this and you will live, apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, we have the potential error of moralism to just simply read a text and say, be like this, be like this person, do what this person does. So as we think about the gospel and its application and the multifaceted aspects of the gospel, We need to be thinking of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in relation to every other passage of Scripture. I love to travel. I always have. I've had the opportunity to to travel quite a bit. Uh, One of the recurring arguments in our home, if you're over and just kind of around the dinner table uh, among Megan and I, is 
who has been in the most countries. I always think I've been in the most countries. She always says she's been in the most countries. It really doesn't matter because we know that I'm right. Uh, but I love traveling uh, to, to other countries. And when I'm traveling to other countries, uh, just like anyone else uh, probably in the room or when you're traveling to another state or another city, anywhere that you go, you always ask a couple questions in advance. All right, where do I need to go while I'm here? What do I need to eat while I'm here? What do I need to see while I'm here? And on one particular occasion, while I was traveling, I had the opportunity uh, passing through Italy to, to stop in Rome. And of all of the people I spoke to, everybody said, you need to go to the Sistine Chapel. It doesn't matter how much time it takes out of your day. It doesn't matter how much it costs you. You need to get to the Sistine Chapel and you need to see the Sistine Chapel. Has anybody ever seen the Sistine Chapel? Okay, it's, in, it's really impressive, right, when you, you go in there. But as you're moving toward the, the Sistine Chapel, it's really hard to appreciate how impressive is it, it's about to be. You're passing wonderful paintings. You're passing incredible architecture. And at some point during the long walk through all of the different hallways, you begin to think, is this really worth my time? Is it really worth my time to, to travel all of this way, to walk down all of these corridors, to stand in this long line behind all of these people, so that I can see this thing that I can read about in books, that I can look at online. And when you finally step into the room to see the Sistine Chapel, you realize that all of your doubts have been alleviated, that it was completely worth the wait. It is beyond impressive as we think of it. And when we go to a place like Rome, we begin to see, when we go to places like that, that an essential aspect of being there and visiting a place like that is seeing something like the Sistine Chapel. So also, seeing a text in relation to Jesus Christ is an essential element of biblical interpretation. But not in a where's Jesus, almost like a where's Waldo kind of a way, looking for him in ways where he's not actually in the text or simply reading the text and saying, and Jesus at the end. Because as we're working through passages and looking for Christ meaningfully in the text, if we don't look for it in legitimate ways, we make illogical leaps and we make unfounded connections. And then when we try to share the gospel from those particular passages, we find that our gospel presentation is less than convincing to the people that we're trying to persuade with the gospel. So as we have gathered here this evening, we have to figure out a way to make a biblical case for connecting our text any text that we're reading, and we'll dive into some texts in just a moment, to make a legitimate connection to the gospel, to legitimately show the impact of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the unifying interpretive center of Scripture according to the Scripture. This is the conviction of the Bible, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus change everything. It's the reason that you've gathered here this evening. It's the reason that you're members of your churches. It's the reason that you share the gospel with the people that you share the gospel with. It's the reason that we train our children the way that we do. We believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has meaning not only for our life, but for everyone else's life around us. The Old Testament anticipated the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament tells us that it was pre-proclaimed in the Old Testament and is, has now finally been revealed in the New Testament. The, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations is now made pl uh, plain and clear to us. And we must show when we're reading the Bible and teaching others from the Bible and trying to share the gospel from the scripture, 
a legitimate connection from our passage to the gospel. So if that's the conviction of the Bible, we need to look into the Bible to see where the Bible actually highlights that conviction and teaches that to us. Take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to move around just a little bit here for a while. Romans chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can look underneath the seat in front of you. should be a Bible there. Romans chapter 1. Now this is the part where I need you to read with me and then you're going to start speaking out loud and we're going to throw out some answers together as we start moving through different passages. Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin reading chapter 1, verse 1. Notice what the apostle says to us. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. According to Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, what do we see uh, uh, that he's teaching us here about this text and its relationship to the gospel? That's not a rhetorical question. I need you to, to say it out loud. Speak loudly so everyone can hear you. This gospel has been promised through the prophets. What else? What's this gospel about? This gospel is concerning Jesus, but specifically he says his son here, right? It's promised to us in ages past. And in particular, how does he, how does he speak of those texts? He doesn't just say the Old Testament. What does he call them? He calls them the Holy Scriptures. So it's been pre-proclaimed, promised in the Old Testament. It's a gospel that's focused on his son. And it's in... Uh, texts that we would identify as Holy Scripture. Let's turn a couple pages and look what else Paul says about this. Romans chapter 4, look at me in verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 23, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does Paul say about the gospel in Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25? Who's he speaking about at the beginning of the passage? It was not written for who? Only. Not only for Abraham. All right, what else do we see? It's written for who? It's written for us. Was that? You, that's right, for believers. Just say it out loud. You don't even have to raise your hand in here. You can just announce it out. All right, so it's uh, not only for Abraham. It's written for us. And it, what does it reveal to us? Abraham did what in the Old Testament? He believed, and it was counted what? So if we want to have the faith of Abraham, what do we need to do? And it will what? Count for us as righteousness, and in particular, Paul says it relates to which doctrine in verse 25? The doctrine of justification for us. All right, let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter's writing, concerning this salvation, 
the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All right, in verse 10, he tells us that we're focused on what? At the very beginning of the verse. We're concerning this salvation, and then immediately as he tells us about this salvation, who does he go to again? The prophets, and what did the prophets do? They're searching, and they're looking for what in particular? They're looking for the time so that we might know about what? What's been promised to us? What's that? The Spirit of Christ, and in particular, it's a gospel that focuses on what? What's been predicted in those, in those passages? The sufferings of Christ, and then what? Subsequent glories. So he's saying it's been pre-proclaimed. We're looking back at the Old Testament. The unifying, interpretive center of Scripture is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just the New Testament speaking about this. The Old Testament has been speaking about this. The prophets were proclaiming that this grace would be revealed to you, and it focuses on the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, the resurrection of Christ, at least in particular in this moment, that, that they might know these things. And this is something that's so precious. Who longs to be able to understand this and to look into these mysteries? Not just us, but even angels are longing to look into this. Let's flip over to Luke 24. Very famous section of scripture. Probably the greatest class on biblical theology that has ever been taught by our Lord Jesus, no less. And Luke 24, we're going to begin reading in verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now Jesus says the, uh, the, law, uh, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms are about who? All of it's about him. Verse 45 then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, what's really important, that reference there, then he opened uh, their minds. Look at verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Look up just a little bit more to verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So there's something about the, the disciples not being able to see clearly until Jesus has been raised from the dead and then explains how his death, burial, and resurrection changes everything. We see something of their, their ability to now understand this side of the resurrection, that all of the things that have been proclaimed are completely about him. Verse 45 again. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
So this proclamation focuses on what, according to Jesus? All of the Old Testament is about him, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and it all focuses on what in verse 46? In 40, 40, uh, verse 46. The death and resurrection of Christ to what end, according to Jesus? What is the purpose of this? What should be the, the response the appropriate response to the gospel that focuses on his death, burial, and resurrection, his sufferings. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we see in Paul, we see in Peter, we see from Luke and recording our Lord's teachings that the Old Testament is the pre-proclamation of the gospel, according to Paul, according to Peter, according to Luke. But we have to think a little bit about what is the gospel as we're thinking of this pre-proclamation of this good news of the gospel. Flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then we'll bunker down here for just a moment. So if the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are the unifying interpretive center, we need to think and clarify for ourselves about this good news, this gospel that is being proclaimed to all people in all nations. Right, let's look. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. We're going to read to verse 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that the Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what is of first importance or what is the gospel? You're just looking at the passage. What is he throwing out? All right, he died. What else? He was buried. What else? He's risen again. All of this, according to the apostle, happens how? It happens all according to the scripture. So we see this. He's died according to the scripture. He has been buried according to the scriptures. He's been raised according to the scriptures. So when we, we think of the gospel according to the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what do we need to focus on if we're sharing the gospel with other people? We have to share the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, a little more carefully, and perhaps maybe a little more slowly, what is the most emphasized aspect of the gospel in this text? His appearance. How many times do we see his appearance emphasized here? Several, I like that, this is good. You know, like, who knows, I didn't count. Oh, Lord, you know how many times it's in there. Thank you, Murray. Like, <laughs> Murray was a history teacher, he wasn't a math teacher. So, all right, so verse five, he appeared to Cephas, then to, more, uh, then to the 12. Verse six, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then verse seven, then he appeared to James and then the apostles. No, uh, verse eight, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So when we think of the gospel 
We think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, when we focus on the gospel, that's really kind of the the core of what we need to be putting all of our attention into. The death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus as we uh, study the scripture. But the apostle Paul, as he's highlighting something for us here, he doesn't only focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He continues to, to move out as he speaks about these six different groups of people that Jesus appeared to and revealed himself to. He revealed himself to Cephas. He appeared and revealed himself to the 12. He appeared and revealed himself to 500 or so people who are all still alive. He appeared and revealed himself to James. He appeared and revealed himself to all of the apostles. He appeared and revealed himself to the apostle Paul. So as we think of what Paul is emphasizing here in the text, he certainly sits at the center of that, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but he continues to to move on. He doesn't just focus on that. He focuses on something that relates a little bit after that, when we think of the the ascension of Christ right here, right? And Paul just kind of centers in on this time before the ascension of Christ, when Christ is taken up into heaven, as we see in the book of Acts, Paul just keys in on this aspect of that there being more than just the death, burial, and resurrection as he applies the gospel to the people. But he continues to move on as we read the text a little more carefully and a little more closely. Drop your eyes down with me to verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God or the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In this section of the passage, what aspect of the gospel does the Apostle Paul actually focus on? 1 Corinthians 15, verses three through eight, we see him hone in on death, burial, and resurrection, but something about appearances afterwards, pre-ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he focused on now here? All right, he focuses on the end of the age, then the end will come, that's good, the coming of the kingdom. What else does he focus on? Focuses on the end of death, certainly, especially if we get to the back end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What else does he focus on? What's that? Certainly, he deals with the destruction of the enemy, some level of judgment that's in there as well. What else does he focus on? Handing over the kingdom, okay. Certainly there. What else? Focuses on the reign of Christ, right? So we see it right here in the text. If we just look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When is that reign of Christ occurring? That's right now. That's right where we live. All right, so as we think of this, ascension, we have present reign of Christ. You have this aspect of judgment. And then if you want to think of this as not ET, but eternity future, right? So we, we have final judgment down here. The, the Apostle Paul continues to, to deal with aspects of the gospel as we, we think of eternity future pre-consummation. He moves on from the death, burial, and resurrection. He deals with the aspect of applying the gospel here. 
He speaks of Christ's present reign after his ascension. He doesn't mention the ascension in this passage at least. There's some level of, of judgment, the destruction of the enemy dealing with death. There's the consummation. And then he's dealing with fanning out everything in the future when, when the kingdom of God will come and for, for eternity past or for eternity future. So he keeps revealing more and more. For Paul, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the core. But when writing to a group of Christians in Corinth who are struggling, a group of Christians who are divided, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, some follow uh, Cephas, they're following different groups of people, they have lots of questions if you go back and you read the Corinthian correspondence, questions about worship and questions about the resurrection and questions about spiritual gifts, questions about the Lord's Supper, The Apostle Paul continues to teach them, but he doesn't simply say, believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What you need to know to fix all of your problems is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't simply come and say, substitutionary atonement. You only need to know substitutionary atonement. You need to know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the core. You must believe in the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't, you're not a Christian. But he continues to reveal more to them. Appearances are important as he deals with the gospel. Christ's present reign is important as he encourages this church, as he deals with the gospel. The end of all things is important as he applies and deals with the gospel. All of these are essential aspects of the gospel. When the apostle Paul is coming to this church and writing to this church, offering hope to them, offering hope to people who are in a broken world, in a church that still struggles and is not yet perfect, as he tries to encourage a group of people who have been wandering and are bewildered by what they've heard other people say and some assumptions that they've made themselves based on the apostle Paul's ministry, All of them are elements that are essential for the Apostle Paul as he applies the gospel to them and we miss out on them if we only focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in our proclamation of the gospel. You must believe this. But the Apostle Paul moves on beyond that to continue to show the fullness of of the work of Christ as he applies the gospel to their life and says something meaningful about his work pre-ascension, present reign, and the end of all things as he fans out a little bit farther. So as we think about what the Apostle Paul is doing here, he's, he's moved out from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we could go forward, can we also go backwards when we're thinking about aspects of the gospel that might be revealed in scripture that we can apply to people's lives to encourage them? Are there other ways that we can look back before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to see the fullness of this work? Once again, that's not a rhetorical question. And if you answer, you need to tell me from what text you're thinking that your answer comes from. And if you don't answer, you just look down like everybody else. So the Apostle Paul thought that he could move forward. So let's just assume for a moment. He thinks that we can also move backwards as we're trying to apply the gospel, as we think about other aspects of Jesus' life and ministry, incarnation or eternity past, rounding out our presentation of the gospel. Let's look to 1 Peter chapter 2. 
Paul is not Peter, but we see the scripture doing uh, this, helping round out our presentation of the gospel and our understanding of the work of Christ in all of its fullness. First Peter, chapter two, and again, kind of the, the center here, right? We think of the cross, this idea of resurrection, things moving, moving forward. First Peter, chapter two, verse 21. Notice what the uh, apostle Peter says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Now I want you to pay attention to that word suffer for a moment. Leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your soul. All right, so overseer of your souls. All right, Peter, as he's highlighting here for us, what aspects of the gospel come into view from this text? Suffering comes into view. What else? Christ is our example. That's important. What else comes in? What's that? Dying to sin. Excellent. What else comes in? His, his perfection in his holy life in particular. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. That's excellent. The, the way he lived. No deceit was found in his mouth. He did not sin. What else? He certainly deals with his substitutionary atoning sacrifice, his wounds in our place. The humility of Christ is right. In particular, you're just thinking of how he humbled himself. Is right. So we, we look here now. Let's look at this word suffer in verse 21 or this word suffer in verse 23. When is that suffering in Jesus' life? Typically when we think of the sufferings of Christ, where do we go? We immediately go to the cross. We, we immediately come right back here, and we have a trigger word. Sufferings of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus died on the cross for me. He suffered on my behalf. But Paul, or Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, at least in these first references dealing with his suffering, what is he referring to or which time period in Jesus' life? What's that? Dealing with his whole life, or really his sufferings before what? Before he died on the cross. So here Peter begins to, to work backwards for us, right? The, the life and the ministry of Christ. He suffered during his life. In what ways did he suffer during his life? Tempted to sin, but he, he did not sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. In what other ways did he suffer? Okay, so we'll come back to that aspect as well, but certainly like the, the limitations of, of being someone who added humanity to himself. All right, what else? Rejection. Rejection from who? From his family. Who else? The Pharisees. The religious leaders rejected him. Who else? The disciples rejected him. All his, all his people turned their back on him. Who else? 
His government failed him. He knew what it was like to live in America, right? I know. Like, so he, every, every, everybody re- rejected him. That was just not a political comment. It was a joke. Calm down. Bring the tensions down. All right, if you want to read more about that, read the journal Rodney gave out earlier. All right, so, but as, as we think of this, we, we see the sufferings of Christ are more than just death, burial, and resurrection. We have to focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter deals with these sufferings, and he says that these sufferings are what for us? They're an example for us. We can't die on the cross like Jesus died on the cross. We're not anybody's savior. Jesus is our savior. But the way that Jesus suffered in his life and ministry is an example for us. Why would that be relevant for Peter's people? Who's Peter writing to in 1 Peter? He's writing to exiles. People from my church in particular better get this right because we've studied 1 Peter. He's writing to elect exiles. Where are they? They're dispersed. They're all over the place. What type of suffering for sure are they experiencing? They're experiencing persecution, but when we think of persecution, we almost exclusively think of what kind of persecution? Physical violence. We think of someone being martyred for the faith. But it seems, at least in 1 Peter, what type of persecution are they experiencing? There are some people who are experiencing physical things, but they're experiencing what type of persecution? What's that? Emotional persecution in the sense that they've been what from their countrymen? Slandered, uh, alienated. People are misrepresenting them and they're saying things about them because of their faith. They're, they're ostracizing them. Their belief in Christ is causing them maybe their marriage or their job or unity among their family members and their friends. And they're, they're losing out on all of the benefits of living in community with other people because of their faith in Christ. And Peter points to the life of Jesus and says, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows exactly what it's like to be rejected by his family and rejected by his friends and betrayed by his government and alienated from the very people that he came to serve and to love and not cared for by the people who are supposed to care for him. His disciples, his followers, his best friends rejected him. He knows exactly what it's like when you've had your best friend, people who should be trusted in your life, turn their back on you and walk away from you. And this is an example for you. The Savior knows exactly what it is like to be you. Jesus is utterly unique. And Jesus died on the cross. He gets there in verse 24, for you, so that you would put sin to death, as Ken highlighted for us. But he also highlights the life and ministry of Christ and says, this too applies to your life. If the Savior suffered in this way, who are you to think that you would not suffer in the same way? And if they rejected him, why would they not reject you? Which sounds a lot like who's teaching in the Bible. Jesus says the exact same thing in John's gospel. So we see Peter, he's moving backwards And he's saying that there are other aspects of the gospel that are in view. All right, let's flip over to Luke chapter 2. We've already had it mentioned a little bit. Luke chapter 2. Can we go even farther back as we think of rounding out our presentation and understanding of the gospel? Now, without even looking at Luke chapter 2, when do we read Luke chapter 2? If we only read it once a year, when do we read it in the life of the church? We read it in Christmas, and during Christmas, we're focused on what? The birth of Christ, the incarnation. We also call that time what? Advent, which means 
coming. So we're, we're focusing on his coming, looking forward to his, his second coming. Every Advent is a reminder that we're still waiting, right? Every Christmas is a reminder that things are not yet as they will be in eternity future. So there's this constant reminder. And notice, though, what the angel does when he comes in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, very famous verses for us. And the angel said to them, speaking to who? The shepherds, right? Speaking to these people, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you a gospel, good news of great joy that will be for all people. And what is the good news according to verse 11? The Savior, who is Christ the Lord, has been born. So as we see here, we see even in Luke's gospel, farther back, we think of this this idea of directionality, right? The, The incarnation of Christ. Rodney helped me draw a better diagram. So you'll see arrows going in places, but every kind of climactic events, right? Coming down, going up, coming down, going up, uh, in that sense, or just kind of major transition, transition periods there. Uh, that is not an eschatological statement with the arrow. Uh, but a- as we think of this, Luke is telling us that there's good news. Good news as we apply the incarnation, great joy, the Savior has been born. So as we think of the gospel, even here, Luke is not simply focused on the death, burial, and resurrection. As he's recording this teaching, He's focused on the incarnation. But the incarnation is always moving where in the Bible? Toward what? The incarnation is always moving toward the cross. If you read the, the Institutes by John Calvin, one of the things that you'll, you'll see that he says is that the sole purpose of the incarnation was our redemption. Jesus came so that he might die, be buried, and raise for us and for our salvation. We see this over and over again in Scripture. But once again, Luke doesn't focus on death, burial, and resurrection. He applies the, the incarnation, the gospel to us. We see this in Paul's writing as well, Philippians chapter 2, if you'll turn there. Philippians chapter 2, very famous Christ hymn. Look with us in verse 4. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Now, we're gonna talk about going farther back in just a moment. But in this text, in Philippians, what aspects of the gospel are in view? In verses four through 11 that we just read. Looking at this chart, looking at that text, what aspects are in view? Incarnation certainly in view. What else? Was that his humiliation? So not just in his life, but also it, it deals with his death, burial, and resurrection, his suffering there. That, that suffering is vicarious suffering for us. What else is in view? 
his life is in view, the way that he, he lived uh, as he was humbled. What else is in view? Certainly his obedience in his life. What else is in view? His exaltation, so not just resurrection, but his ascension and present reign are, are in view now. God has bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. We, we see this as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy uh, for us here. So there's, there's more in view. What's that? And Paul goes even farther back. He goes back and he deals with his equality. So not another E.T. reference, uh, but eternity past, eternity future. Paul go, goes back as he's, he's dealing in time and he says, Jesus was equal with God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he took on or added to himself what? Humanity. He humbled himself. He's truly God. And he's truly man. He added to himself in the incarnation humanity. And in that, he, he humbled himself. There is a, a suffering in the fact that he added this to himself, that he would experience all the limitations of what it means to be a human. We see Paul do this also in Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Again, very famous verses for us. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What time does Paul have in view here in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6? What's that? Before time. Before time, right? He, eternity past. God has set forward an elect uh, plan to redeem his people. He literally has moved history to save our souls. We see the apostle teaching us here. So as we, we think of our gospel presentation, we often focus in this spot. Death, burial, resurrection of Christ. It's essential for us to focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But we see the apostles, we see the gospel authors, that they are rounding out the fullness of how we understand the application of the gospel by including other elements. And if we just hold the gospel up and we continue to turn it in light, we will see more beauty as it's applied to more areas as we think of what God has done for us in eternity past, what God will continue to do for us in eternity future in light of everything that he's promised and has already done for us, the present reign of Christ, why we can have confidence in the proclamation of the gospel, that there will be a judgment. There will be a day when he uh, makes all things uh, right, when we, we look forward to, the, uh, to that day. So there's a, a rounding out of our presentation of the gospel here. We see that there's all of these are parts of good news as we proclaim the gospel to people who are tired and weary, and weak, and worn out. All of these are aspects of the gospel that we need to work into their lives so that we might help them see how Jesus's ministry applies to absolutely every area of their life as well, that they might know the fullness, the manifold fullness of what Christ has done for us. But if we poured water into this diagram, where would all of the water settle? What's the, the deepest place?
death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Right there in the center. That's where the very core, the lowest point, everything is there and everything flows there and everything flows out of there. We see that in famous texts from anywhere from Isaiah 53 to Mark 10, 45. Jesus came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the normal way that we share the gospel with somebody. But we see that there are other vistas that we can proclaim to people as we're applying the gospel to their life. But sadly for many of us, even though this is the core, what do we typically focus on the most? Well, not just the cross. In particular, what do we focus on? We focus on sin. And when we focus on sin, we say that Jesus did what? He died for you. And he did die for you. But sometimes we just stop there. We don't even need a risen savior to finish our gospel presentation. We just say, he died for you. He died for you. He substituted himself for you. And we stopped short of sharing the fullness of the gospel with other people. So often our gospel presentation is truncated because we only focus on the death of Christ. Or we only focus on the death and resurrection of Christ. And they are central, essential. The unifying interpretive center of the scriptures is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But there is more for us to see. We need a savior that is not in the tomb, but is out of the tomb. So we, when we tragically stop short, we miss out on all the fullness of everything is there. As we take people forward and backward to stimulate their hope in Christ and their faith in Christ. And as much of the New Testament is doing, their love for one another in Christ to deepen their understanding, actually, of the death, burial, and resurrection as it is applied to lots of other areas in their life. So, as we think of the, the center there, the, the interpretive center of the gospel, everything from the incarnation is moving here. After this, everything is, is moving to consummation, right? Uh, when, when God will bring about all of the promises, everything that he's done for us will lead to everything that he's promised for us as well. If we were to answer this question tonight then, why did Jesus die and rise again? What's the answer? No, that's not it. That's true, though. What else? What's that? That's true, but that's not it. What else? To show us his grace? True, but not it. What else? True, but not it. What else? For his name, true but not it. True but not it. What's that? Why did Jesus die and rise again? Scripture said, fulfill prophecy, true but not it. Why else? I'm going to keep saying no no matter what you say. I think you know that at this point. It, it, it depends on the text that we're reading in the scripture to understand how it is applied. Let me show you. Flip over to Romans again. What's that? Who's that? Somebody's not happy with my answer. Boo to the guy up front. You know what? This is my S&T. You know, <laughs> all right. Romans chapter four. Let's look at the verses that we read earlier and then we'll look again. <clears throat> Romans four, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for what? 
So in Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, the application is for our understanding of justification. But turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Why did Jesus rise and die again according to Romans chapter 14, verse 9? That he might be the ruler of both the living and the dead, or the Lord of both the living and the dead. All of the answers that everyone said were true. But we need to see that the gospel authors, they realized that there was more to the gospel than simply Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. Or more than simply Jesus died for you, or more than just the doctrine of justification. They continue to apply the gospel. The gospel did a lot more than simply forgive us of our sins. It does forgive us of our sins. We have a massive sin problem that must be dealt with, and it can only be dealt with by the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin has been imputed to us from our father Adam. We need righteousness imputed to us from the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need his vicarious substitution atoning death on the cross for us, but there is more. Even Protestants who love the gospel and love Jesus Christ stop short of understanding the fullness of the gospel because they don't fan far enough out and they don't look far enough back and they don't realize how it applies to so many different areas. And the apostles in God's mercy were writing to us to help us see that it might deepen our appreciation of what Jesus actually did here as we look to different passages of scripture, which is why we also see in the same book that we just read from, Romans chapter five, verses one through 11. So we just saw in Romans chapter four that he died and rose again for our what? Well, yes, for our sins, but for our just justification, right? And then notice what the apostle Paul says. It's astonishing to us if we read it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's pretty good Bible preaching right there. All right, there's a lot to rejoice in. But then notice, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, our endurance produces character, our character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's in the future, right? Uh, wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now are we reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And if you just keep reading the passage, verse 15, more, uh, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. Verse 17, more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. Verse 20, Again, sin increased, but grace abounded all the more. The Apostle Paul is saying there's so much more as we look to the fullness of the gospel and try to apply it. So, we go all the way back and we think death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the interpretive center 
unifying the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the very core of the gospel. But the apostles round out our understanding of that fullness. And our job as Bible readers, as Bible teachers, whoever got the Hugh Jackman book earlier, that's an excellent book. If you uh, teach with any regularity, it's a very helpful and useful book. I commend it to you. Uh, We need to think, how do we leverage different aspects of the gospel in the church and for the church so that we might continue to apply the gospel to other areas in their life? But not simply just leverage them. We need to think of to what end we are leveraging them. So as we think of to what end we are leveraging them, let's look at just a a few other texts. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And just by way of reminder so that I don't forget myself, uh, we have 70 copies of this diagram down front here You feel free to take one or as many as that you would like uh, so that you might be able to hopefully find this to be useful uh, in your reading of Scripture. All right, Colossians chapter 1. So we we not only need to think of there's a more uh, manifold fullness of our understanding of the gospel. There's a rich fullness, and we don't simply need to just drop into every Bible passage and say, okay, great, incarnation. Okay, great. Eternal, uh, eternity, future. Okay, great. Present reign. We don't need to, to, to simply uh, think, think of moments like that. Uh, I just realized I put E.T. when I said not E.T., but that's supposed to be an F. Okay, eternity, future. I saw people, why, why didn't you just say something? I'm looking for a new PA. Uh, it's a, <laughs> so it wasn't a joke. It was... Yeah. I got nothing. All right, so we're, we're, we're coming to Colossians. It's not enough to just simply uh, look and then identify which aspect of the gospel might be in view, but we need to think to what end is that aspect of the gospel in view in the passage so that we might apply it rightly and most beneficially to other people. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 24. There's a bit of a hinge, a very familiar section of scripture for many of us, but if you want to just think of it this way, Verses 15 through 20, he's the image, he, 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 and then it switches in verse 21. You were alienated, you were hostile in mind, you were doing evil deeds. So there's a shift, discussing him, then discussing you, you all, plural, uh, from verses 15 to 20, and then verses 21 to 24. Now, as we just look over these verses very quickly, and I'm going to give you about 35 seconds, uh, I want you to to read through them, and then in a moment, I'm going to ask you what aspects of the gospel are in view. Take a moment and read the passage yourself. About 10 more seconds. All right. What aspects of the gospel are in view? As you're looking at the text, did look at the text, or still looking at the text, if you were to throw something out and look at our chart here for, for just a moment, what would you say and from what verse? All right, certainly, yeah, he, he's going back. And in particular, you're pointing to where? He made all things, that's right. Okay, yeah. Now, as we think of that, this is more focused on the work of Christ. 
Creation is certainly in view, but that's a little bit different than this when we think of the biblical uh, redemptive understanding of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Here we're just focusing on the uh, uh, life of Christ, but creation is certainly in view, and new creation in some sense is in view. What else is in view here, though, in this passage, in the life and ministry of Christ? Verse 20, all right, so we look there. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he reconcile us to himself? By the blood of the cross, right? So we see that. The death, burial, and resurrection, in that sense, are, are in view here for us. What else is in view? All right, the incarnation, if we look there in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, right? So incarnation certainly in view. What else is in view? Final judgment, you're pointing to where? Verse 22, and he has now reconciled his body flesh in order to present you blameless before the, uh, um, and above reproach before him. Okay, yeah, so we, we see the presentation before him. Good, what else? Present reign, where? Okay, uh, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, he's, he's ruling and reigning now. What else is in view? Which means that he's been what? He's raised, all right, so resurrection's in view. All of these aspects are certainly in play here. Uh, future judgment, reign and rule, uh, cross, the resurrection, incarnation. How is Paul using these aspects of the gospel, though, in this passage? All of those aspects are in view. You could come to this text and you could say, wow, future judgment's in here. And then you could just launch off and you could preach an entire sermon or teach an entire lesson on future judgment. Or you could deal with the incarnation and you say, excellent. And now here's my Christmas sermon. And we're dealing, with, we're dealing with the incarnation. All true, all good, theologically appropriate. But how is Paul using all of these different aspects in this passage? Well, we're, point to it in the text. What's, it, what's he doing here in the text? Think of the text that I gave you, verses 15 to 24. And where's that at? All right, so the Apostle Paul, if we're to use this understanding rightly from Colossians, we need to see that all of the aspects of the gospel that he brought in view here, at least in Colossians, and it changes sometimes depending on the text, are to actually encourage the people to persevere. If you continue in the faith, how do you know that you're a Christian? You are continuing in the faith. If you continue in the faith, then you are one of God's people. You don't continue in the faith, you were not one of God's people. And so Paul says to, to motivate the people, to stimulate the people, to encourage the people. When there are people who are coming in and teaching false things, people say all kinds of things about Colossians and the Gnostic heresy and what it might've been, and we're not sure. Nobody really knows definitively. We know that there were problems. We're definitely sure about that. But the apostle Paul is using all of those different aspects to say, keep going, continue in the faith. So if we're going to share the gospel or at least apply it in a, a central first level importance way for our people, we need to be using this passage to encourage them in a world where there are people who are trying to discourage them and lead them away to help them to continue in the faith so that they might persevere. So as we, we think of it, it's not simply understanding what aspect is in view, but we have to ask to what end is that aspect in view? Let's look to the book of Revelation. We'll do a couple more passages and then we'll start taking some, some questions. All right, the book of Revelation is about what? 
in a word or two? The last things. What else? Maybe everybody's like, that's good. That sums it all up, and I don't want to get in trouble. All right? So if you're in that book, what's that? Jesus wins, okay, what else? When we think of the book of Revelation, what do we think? Heaven, second, second coming, reigning with him forever. So we, we almost exclusively think of things that are future-oriented. Jesus wins, he, uh, we will rule and reign with him, he rules and reigns, something about Revelation 20, we're not sure. All right, so there, but it's all future-oriented for us as we, we think of this. But notice what happens in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. Let's read chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What aspect of the gospel is in view in this text? The incarnation. In a book that we think almost exclusively to be about the future. If we're coming to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, at least here, we need to see that the incarnation is in view. And when we think and take a step back from the book of Revelation as a whole, who is John writing to? Where's John? What, some of the things that we know. Where is he? He's Patmos. He's suffering there for what? faith, he's, he's in some kind of exile. He's writing to who broadly? Churches. And what's he trying to do for those churches? Encourage them. Why is he trying to encourage them? Well, yes, they're definitely messing up. We certainly see that. All right, that's true. Welcome to every church. But what, what else is happening there? I mean, certainly if you read through it, we see that in there. Uh, what, what else do we see, though? He's writing them to, to do what? They're suffering and they're now doubting and people have been saying things all through the first century that he's already come, that they've missed out, that their persecution reveals something deficient about their faith. And he's calling them to continue to press on and to persevere. So there's something in this book uh, that we think to be exclusively about the future when the incarnation is brought in to encourage people once again while they're suffering or to persevere in the faith. Let's look over in the book of Jude. We were there this morning. So that doesn't mean we can't get other places in Revelation or in Colossians, but we need to think what aspect or aspects are in view and to what end are they in view so that we might understand how we're applying the gospel. All right, Jude chapter, uh, well, Jude 1, verse 20. All right, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, when we think of the mercies of Christ or we think of mercy, what immediately comes to our mind most of the time? 
the forgiveness of sins. He's not treated us as our sins deserve. What did he do for us? He died on the cross for us. But when Jude is speaking of mercy here, when is he speaking of the application of that mercy? He's speaking of the second coming. And in what sense is he speaking of mercy being applied to us at the second coming here in Jude? Who's crept in among the people? False teachers. Probably, I was having a conversation with Rodney. If we think of Jude, we certainly need to be thinking of 2 Peter. Probably, uh, what are people saying to them? Jesus did come, they've crept in. But what are they, what are they saying to them now? Well, there's a little bit of that, but in particular, what are they, uh, when we think of 2 Peter? What's the charge? Say it, Rodney. They're denying the promise of his coming. So what does Jude say? You're going to receive mercy when? When he comes. Do not believe these false teachers who have denied the promise of his coming. He will come. And so he deals with mercy, the mercy that they will experience when he comes. And once again, he's using that to call them to persevere as he does three things in here. He tells them to build up, to pray, and to wait for the mercy of God that will will come to them when he comes again for them. So it's not enough for us to simply think what aspect is in view, but we need to think of how is that aspect being used in the passage. Now, I'm going to ask one more question before I let you ask some questions. If we don't do this and don't read the Bible this way, what happens to our Bible reading? What's that? Say it louder. It becomes rote. In what sense does it become rote? And we certainly think of that often with preaching, right? You're just moving through the text and then you know that you're supposed to at some point say, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, believe in him, which is true. And if preachers do that, praise the Lord. But what else happens? So it becomes a little rote, Chris. You already have your expectations. So you've come to the text and you're not even beginning to look how it's applied in the particular text. You already have a preconceived idea. This is one of the great challenges of preaching and teaching the Bible in general. Everybody comes in and thinks, I've heard this before and I don't need to hear this. And so preachers and teachers, good preachers and teachers are always trying to to get behind the defenses that blunt the edge of the text for people. But we do this as Bible readers as well. How many of you, maybe you don't read the Bible every year, but you try to read the Bible regularly through at some point in your life. All right, And we just move through the passage over and over again. I've seen this before. I'll see this again. I'll get back to that in my reading plan again next year. And we, we stop thinking what aspects in view. What else does it do to us? We bring in preconceived notions. It becomes rote. What else? Well, it does if we do it. But what happens if we don't do it? It limits or truncates it in what way? Simply only focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We miss out on these other vistas of the gospel. Would you say anything else? Absolutely. It limits, and then we don't see all of the beautiful contours there and how they apply to our life and how they're being leveraged to motivate us, to stimulate us to love God, to turn away from evil, to love other people to be faithful to Christ and to be faithful to his church, how these aspects of the gospel are relevant for us. So, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
is the unifying interpretive center of the scripture according to the scriptures. But as we think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the unifying interpretive center of scripture, we have to ask ourselves, how do we understand any text that we're reading in relation to this gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection? How do we understand any text that we're reading in relation to it so that we understand how it affects us and impacts us and how we are to relate to it so that we can make faithful, legitimate gospel connections that show the fullness of what Christ has done for us. And if you leave with nothing, leave with this. Jesus died to forgive you of your sins so that you might be forever with the Lord. But Jesus did so much more for you. And that is really what the book of Romans in particular, but the New Testament is celebrating. How much more? Look at all that Christ did for you. And think of the riches and the fullness of everything that he did for you so that you might be motivated to press on and to persevere and to love others and to be faithful until we are forever with the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that it's not just a story, but it's true. And Father, we ask that you would help us today to believe the gospel and to apply it to our lives in ways that are fresh and relevant so that we might continue to see layers and contours in the text that perhaps we have just skimmed over and passed over and have not given sufficient time to reflect upon. Father, thank you for these friends who've showed up on a Sunday evening to look at the text with me. Father, I ask that you would bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine upon them in Christ. Amen. Is it on? Is the light on? Now it's on. All right. So now we're going to enter a time of they can just raise their hands and an intern will run them a mic. Great. So if you have a question, raise your hand. Intern will give you a mic. Um, thank you so much for those reflections. Super edifying, super rich. Um, I just had a few questions, so I'll ask my questions and then it's open to everybody else. Um, first, I just wanted to ask how would you incorporate the ministry of pre incarnate Christ into kind of this broad picture? I say that in light of, yeah, like, Jude 5, where it says, uh, literally, Christ, Jesus, rescued the people out of Egypt. Or you could even say, you know, um, everything in the Old, the Old Testament that, that occurred in many ways, that was Christ um, ministering to his people in a sense. Um, so when you describe this, like, um, the history of redemption before the incarnation, um, how would that relate to what happens after the yeah, excellent question. So uh, maybe I'll deal with the diagram and I'll deal with the question a little bit here. This, first of all, th I got this from Dave Hilm who got this from Mike Bullmore and I think everybody else is just kind of selling it around right now. So this is not original to me. Uh, it's not original to Dave Helm. It's not original to Simeon Trust. I changed it a little bit on the way that we did the end here, uh, mostly because I have my own eschatological position. Uh, but what, when we think of this diagram here, it is most helpful in the epistles, in apocalyptic literature, and the gospels. And it changes a little bit, which is why, though Catherine made a really helpful observation about creation being in view, 
That's not necessarily what's in view with the chart here, right? When we think of kind of the broader biblical theological themes of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's certainly true in the text, and that's another contour. But that's not what I was trying to do here with this diagram in particular as we think of the work of Christ and the fullness of of that. So as we think of that uh, particular question as it relates to the book of Jude, there are other tools that we have to be prepared to use to make good and legitimate gospel connections. I think some for understanding Jude, understanding Old Testament books of the Bible, historical narratives, and that could be anything from discerning prophetic fulfillment. And notice how we might see at times Jude is certainly using uh, prophetic fulfillment, even though he's using Enoch and Testament of Moses. He's using Zechariah, other places, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam. So he's, he's citing Genesis, Numbers. And we want to see how prophetic fulfillment, a, a text is being used and to what end to encourage people in there. Sometimes we, we look to other tools like typology. The, the difficulty with typology is that if everything is a type, nothing is a type. So we need to think about how it's, it's bringing about a, a fulfillment. We think of, for example, Christ's priestly ministry. We see it referred to in Genesis with Melchizedek. We see the psalmist pick it up, and then we see the book of Hebrews apply it. And so we see a typological type anti-type. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. There are other ways that we can, can get to this. So I think in the book of Jude with that question, I don't know if I'm thinking this diagram, at least for that particular text that you referenced, as much as there are other tools that we have to slowly become familiar with so that we can then also round out our understanding and application of the gospel and make legitimate connections in, in that moment. And there are lots of good resources to do that. Happy to share some. Does that help? That's right. It's pre-proclaimed revelation is what the New Testament is saying. That's right. Um, second question is, would you say, so sometimes this might feel encouraging, but it can also feel overwhelming. It's like, okay, this is the core, but this is just a lot of facts. What's the relationship between these facts? Would you say that there's like a so that structure where this happens so that this can happen so that this can happen? For a great end. What would you say? Is there a unifying end or a purpose to the work of Christ for us? Would you say that the consummated kingdom is the great end? Um, or would you say that, yeah, how would you organize the kind of progression of this work? Yeah, ultimately, I think if we, I mean, it's, it's hard to not take a big concept and say the glory of God, right? And the scripture is certainly pounding that all the way through for my name, for my glory, right? And when we think of everything occurring the way that it does, it's, it is certainly for God's glory in Christ. And so the way that every, the reason everything is the way that it is is because this is the, the world and the way that things will most glorify God through the redemptive plan of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we think of this, though, I think what this does, and this might feel a little overwhelming, is it, it helps us see that in God's plan that everything was moving through the life of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection to that, that great glorious end. And if we... It is good that we proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But if we stop here in a very decisionalistic sense, and I say, person X, you're a sinner. You must repent of your sins and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. And they say, I believe, help my unbelief. I think in many ways we can offer assurance. 
but we, we stunt their ability to understand the fullness of the gospel so that, and the glory that will resound to God's praise when we look at something like this and slow down and stop just seeing every text being about justification and the very kind of punctiliar, decisionalistic moment of, I've prayed the right prayer, I know my sins are forgiven, and I'm kind of done with the Christian faith from there. And nobody would ever say that, but we so only focus on that. That's the, the only aspect of the diamond that we see. So what this does is it helps us see all of those different aspects, hues of color, and how they all resound, I think, then that big macro principle of the praise of God's glory and grace in eternity future, not E.T. Duh. That's how we learn from consummation. The consummation is the consummation of all the details of every single thing that Christ has done. All of this has to take place so we can see the fullness of God's glory as it's reflected in the work of God. That's right. All right, open to the questions. You just raise your hand, they'll run you a mic. If you don't have any, he'll ask more. Which in turn wanted it more. No. Raymond, thank you for this. Um, and I may have learned this in Simeon Trust and I forgot, but it, it, is, it, there's something that I feel uncomfortable about with the language these are aspects of the gospel. Like, I, I, f I feel like the circle is the gospel, and everything outside the circle are implications or fruits of the gospel or aspects of the work of Christ. And one of the reasons I say that is to, to think of the example of Christ as an aspect of the gospel, I, I just feel a little bit uncomfortable. Can you speak to that? Yeah, uh, aspects can be tricky language, and I think, Joseph, your, your question uh, is, is right here. So we can... If we want to put, uh, there's another way, where did I put my marker? So there's another way we can kind of think of this here, right? So kind of death and resurrection at the core, right? And then if we want to kind of chop it up into circles, sorry, not into, into the middle here. But if you think of incarnation, uh, you know, miracles, um, you know, we can uh, think of the ascension, um, we can think of kind of consummation again, uh, something along those lines. You, you can see contours, maybe, and maybe something there, or maybe not just even consummation, but kind of second coming, right? Maybe, maybe that's a, a, a helpful, helpful way for us to, to th see this. Uh, his miracles, and not just even his miracles, his teaching uh, could be in there. All of that is for belief and repentance and forgiveness and obedience, uh, aspects are not maybe aspects of the gospel. I think it, the language can be tricky for us. If we want to say, this is the gospel, these are contours in which we maybe turn or vistas that we begin to see when we turn that diamond and see the riches of the work of Christ or the, the fullness of the work of Christ. Maybe, maybe that language is helpful here. Not, not that this is the gospel, right? But that the gospel... That there, there's more application for the Christian life, which is what the Apostle Paul is actually rejoicing in. He's done all of that and so much more. You, you can't even begin to comprehend the fullness of the benefits that are, that are yours in Christ. So I guess it depends on how we're using language. Uh, I think aspects would be ways of application. But if aspects becomes confusing, I'd maybe say contours. If that's becoming confusing, I'd probably look for vistas, hues, fragments of, of light that kind of are shined upon uh, because of that, that we would miss. If you, 
if you erase this, then we don't see any beauty in those things. But without this, none of those other things make, make any sense. And, and they're not meaningful. Right? It, it doesn't matter that there's an eternity past. If, if there's no hope for us to have an eternity future with God based on what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Does that help? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question for us to think of that there. So, but that, that's the core uh, there. Yep. I, don't, I mean, you're cutting them off, so that's fine. If you have a question now, just raise your hand and they'll bring it to you. All right. I was just curious, Raymond, how you would, looking at this uh, graph, like the book of Acts yep. and the establishment of the church, um, when you're looking at Colossians 1, just came to mind when Paul says he is the head of the body, the church. And just curious about how you would look at the book of Acts and the narrative of the church being established and, you know, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit um, coming down as well. Yeah, the book of Acts is a unique type of book uh, in, in the New Testament uh, for a variety of reasons. So it is kind of our history book in, in the New Testament. But within the history book, you have sermons and speeches. So you have Peter giving one in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 10. Paul giving sermons or speeches in 13, 17, 20, 22, 24, 26. Stephen's speech, chapter 7. And, and when we look to, to those places, we, we see a lot of redemptive historical or biblical theological fulfillment in the book of Acts that makes it a little bit unlike some of the other history books uh, in the Old Testament, right? So if we're thinking progressive revelation, more is being revealed to us. And then in the book of Acts, we're, we're on the other side of the resurrection. The disciples now have the, the spirit. They're empowered. And we, we see the gospel start to, to move away from Jerusalem, I, I think if we're looking at that, we can see certain aspects where this chart might be helpful uh, because we see ascension in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And we, we, we see the, the relevance of that for our life. The ascension for us, I mean, if you've ever gone through a membership interview here at our church, you know that, I mean, this is kind of the, the freebie. I'm wanting you to share the gospel and I'm wanting you to mention the ascension. Why do I want you to mention the ascension or ascension members of our church? What do, what do I say? Why is it important? Hopefully you remember it. What is the ascension? What's its relevance for us? His victory, yeah. What? His victory. Well, it's his victory, but, but his ascension, he, where does he ascend to? The right, hand. right hand of the Father, and what's he doing? Interceding for us. He's, he's interceding for us that we might what? Make it where? Heaven. That you might make it. So the, the ascension is actually your hope. It, it gives you assurance. Jesus is praying for me that I will make it. And because of his ascension, he sends us what? His spirit. So sometimes this, a diagram like this might be helpful. And then I think when you come to a book like uh, Acts, you have to think of that question like Rodney asked earlier and to say, okay, there are probably some other tools that I need in my toolbox where I can be able to come and lift up and to see what, what does Stephen do when he is critiquing? He tells the redemptive his, uh, history or the, the storyline, and then he applies it to them very, very quickly. And that's a little bit different than, than the chart here. Uh, that we have. So I think when we come to a book like that, we're having to say, okay, what kind of tools do I have in my toolkit so I can begin to see contours, vistas, aspects 
of the gospel at play, or how do I apply typology and you know, prophetic fulfillment uh, here as well? Does that help? Yes. That's a really excellent question. I appreciate the discussion about tools and the fact that we're using um, this tool to help us understand and interpret the scriptures. Um, is there a particular hermeneutical school that is best um, interwoven to this particular tool? Uh, I mean, are you thinking in particular of like somebody's book or are you thinking of a particular tradition or are you thinking, how are, how are you asking the question? Yeah, so uh, if you we look at kind of a spectrum between hyper-dispensationalism, hyper-covenantalism, there, is there a place in the middle? Yeah. Is, there, is there a place that you'd recommend that this lends itself well to um, just some sort of synchrony or harmony. Yeah, I think that the best way for us to understand Scripture and to piece together the storyline is, uh, is covenants and covenant theology. Uh, we teach that to our church. We, we share that, you know, uh, God's glory as it's been revealed to us, his stories as it's been revealed to us, and piece together that Scripture uh, in covenants, right? So from the Adamic covenant, Abrahamic co- or Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant in Christ. And I think that that provides us a lot of clarity on how we understand actually end time picture here as well, though I don't want to make a particular statement there. I think that you can use this chart and not agree with my covenantal understanding of the scripture. And the Simeon Trust guys actually changed their ending. They just kind of come here and then they kind of catapult it into the future and say, insert your eschatology, Uh, which is fine if they want to do that. But I, I think that that might be unhelpful uh, for at least for our people in particular here at the, at the church. So when we think of kind of a, a broader hermeneutic, I think a covenantal hermeneutic of Scripture gives us the most sense of how to understand the story and a redemptive historical, biblical, theological, progressive revelation as it's, it's come to us. I don't think you have to agree with that to use this, or at least you don't have to agree with it to use it to, to hear. So you can, you can look this far... Uh, without covenant theology, as I understand the back end of, of the diagram here, if, if that helps. And that'd be fine. Uh, in that sense, I think you could use that and use, the, use it in a very meaningful way. And I think most dispensationalists would say, yeah, he's currently reigning, even though they might say different things kind of at that point, and it starts to change a lot. That's a really helpful question. Any other questions? Maybe one more. Andrew, run a mic. Look at that jog. Well done. No. So you, you kind of hinted at this already with your membership question, but thinking of that truncated view that you talked about, do you have recommendations for how the church can recover some of those other? So you mentioned, you know, the ascension, and I think the church at large, your average person, it's sort of just a footnote to them. Jesus went up. Yep. How, how do we recover those elements so that people have a more full-orbed understanding of the work of Christ? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, one way to do that, you come at the end of the year, and Patrick Schreiner is coming and teaching on his book, On the Ascension, here, for Sunday Night Theology. Uh, Patrick did that to, to recover the doctrine of the Ascension, uh, and its relevance for us. He does a lot of historical work. He, he kind of deals with why we lost relevance for it, and then kind of the, the essential aspect of it. I think for, for pastors, one of the things that they need to do is they need to be highlighting these things. Uh, and we should bring them up and hold them up in our sermons. I think Bible readers can do this, Bible teachers can do this, whether that's for kids or whether that's for adults, and, and help them see 
the, the fullness of the work of Christ as it applies to their life. So at least as it relates to our, our uh, membership interview, what I'm asking for people is I, I want to hear, uh, I'm a sinner, my sin is destroyed my ability to have a relationship with God. I have a major sin problem. Jesus came and he dealt with my sin problem. He died on the cross for me. Okay, that's substitutionary atonement. But then I'm, I'm wanting to know, are there, there other aspects? And depending on the interview, some people go on at length, which is great, and some people don't. And I just take that moment to try to encourage them so that our members are prepared to say, hey, when you're sharing the gospel, and probably some of our members are in here, we say, yeah, when... I sat through that membership interview. He, he pressed a little bit here to, to encourage some of these aspects so that I might think of them. How much they think of them is on one level not as relevant for me as much as just trying to say, hey, you, these need to also be a part of how you understand what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus has done for other people when you're sharing the gospel. So I think one way we can do that is bring it into our membership interviews. One way we can do that is teach about that. One way we can do that is to use something like this, especially in the epistles and the apocalyptic literature, and hold up the different contours, aspects, vistas, however the language that we're comfortable with, to show people the relevance. So I hope that our people would say this morning when I was in Jude and I dealt with mercy, I highlighted the aspect, at least to some degree, the mercy that we will receive on, on judgment day when Christ comes again. Uh, and just try to, to hold that up for our people. It's a great question. Turning it over to you. All right. Uh, here we go.